This episode of the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast, once again, brought to you, the listener, by Echo One Photography. If you're from Toronto and you're a comedian or actor or musician and looking to get some professional headshots done, well, look no further, Echo One Photography. We'll get that done for you. Hells yeah. You own a business in Toronto. Get some professional product photography done for e-commerce or advertising purposes. Yeah, they'll do it all. Echo One Photography. Just email Eugene, E-U-G-E-N-E, at echo1photography.com and enter J-D-C-H in the subject line for discounts and offers applicable to you, the listener. Oh, God, thank you so much. Message to my mom Message to my mom Hi mom, this is episode number six. Well, from what I found out this weekend, you are not listening to this podcast, which I appreciate. But if for any reason you've decided to check it out, if your curiosity has gotten the better of you and you start here at episode six, let me just start by asking please... Please don't listen. I appreciate it. And we discuss topics that you might not like to hear. So please, I ask you, Mom, I love you. Please don't listen to the podcast. Message to my mom. Message to Yeah, that's such a good song. Oh, man. Hey! How are you? Hi, hi, hi. Episode number six coming at you, not quite yet, from Lemon Press Studios. Still on the road. Actually, by the time you hear this, I will be back in Toronto and happy about it. I'm in a small, dark room right now. There's a mirror in front of me so I can see myself, which is weird. I'm talking to myself. That is such a good... I love that song. As a matter of fact, if you like that song too, go to the Facebook group, facebook.com slash jdcomedyhour. And there's a video up there of uh, Garage Baby performing the song... The song? Sign? Song live at the last Julian Dion Comedy Hour live show at Say What? Speaking of which, if you are in Toronto and you're hearing this right now, uh, come t- tomorrow, <laughs> October 8th, is uh, my 31st birthday show. And man, what a show do we have lined up. Christine Von Hagen, my friend, a roommate from New York City, and uh, now she lives in Vegas, very funny comedian. She's on the show. Ron Jossel, 
is on the show. Matt O'Brien and Steve Dillon stacked night of stand-up comedy. I myself, of course, will be doing the usual 45 minutes, 50 minutes, whatevs. Whatever happens, come out and celebrate. October 8th, say what? 67 Front Street, downtown Toronto. Any hoozle. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks again for checking in. Six episodes for doing this. This is a good one. My guest is Adam Fox. Foxy Cleopatra, as I call him. He's the lead guitarist. Lead guitarist? Guitar player? He's the lead guy in uh, Garage Baby. He's got a great story. We talk about that, and he's got a great song that he's written uh, on a solo project called Josephine, which is a very powerful track, and there's a great story behind it. And uh, he tells the story. And at the end of the show, I'm going to play the song, so listen through to that. Enjoy my chat with Adam. That was a lot of fun, and we we do another hilarious rendition of uh, or version of Are You Mariah or Yoko? And uh, it's a good one. It's a goodie. So yeah, and uh, thanks for the emails. A lot of emails. Keep those coming in at uh, pod at jdcomedyhour.com. And just keep doing, just keep doing you. You do you. Cause I like you. How was your weekend? Did you have a good one? I had a pretty good weekend myself. Uh, that was rude. I didn't even wait for you to answer. How was your weekend? Good. That's good. I, I I had a good one. It was my birthday on Saturday. 31 years old. And um, like I mentioned on Friday's episode. <clears throat> excuse me. Did you hear that? My voice just cracked. I'm blooming. Blossoming as a man, right? In front of your ears. Oh. Yeah, it was my birthday. So I spent the weekend on the road. Still am. Or probably not by now. By the time you're reading or hearing this. Anywho. I'm on the road. And... Uh, it was a good, good, fun. Bur- I consumed a lot of non-alcoholic beer and decaffeinated coffee. <laughs> That's my life now. I'm so much fun to be around. Invite me to things. Please. I had a good time. Uh, my parents were in Ottawa, so I randomly got to see them. I get to see them only uh, about twice a year, so it was nice. My mom still hasn't listened to the podcast. Successfully avoided it. She mentioned it, though. She told me that she couldn't figure out how to download it. And I told her, you you know, Mom, you probably wouldn't like it. It's just shop talk with comedians. And she seemed okay by that. I hope she doesn't persist. A friend of mine asked me, why do you not want your mom to listen? I mean, you're a comedian. You know, imagine your mom is a liberal person, which my mom is great. Let me preface by saying that always. But liberal, she is not. Very conservative and um, what what can I say? I j- okay, j- paint you a picture. This is my mother in a nutshell. She came to see me do stand-up about seven or eight years ago, and there was a guy on the show who did a joke about how he's short and his wife is really tall, and when they have sex, it's weird, and the joke goes something like, I'm paraphrasing, the joke goes something along the lines of, I'm short, my wife is tall, the sex is weird, and... Uh, so, uh, like, we 69 the other day, and her belly button's never been cleaner. My mom was outraged by that. She still brings it up. I'll talk to her once in a while, and she'll ask me who I put on to say what, and she'll 
lovingly warned me, you know, you, you, you can't, you shouldn't put on dirty, like that disgusting comedian that was on that time we saw you talking about his wife's belly button, the disgusting. Still brings it up. So that just, that just goes to show you her scale of offensiveness. I, I mean, already on this podcast, we've done and said worse things. So I just rather avoid all that and get her to not listen. So thanks for not listening. Mom, I appreciate it. But it was good to see my, my parents. I hung out all weekend with them. Uh, Friday went to this. My my dad was basically in Ottawa for a service corps, Army Service Corps reunion. He was part of the Corps in 1967. And he hasn't seen a lot of these people in over 50 years. So he, the whole thing, or almost 50 years, I guess. And the thing was that he would go there. It's a, it was like a meet and greet. And back then, he was the youngest in his sort of platoon. So you, and my, my dad's 67, so you got to imagine all these people were, you know, 70s, 80s. So we walk into the Legion in uh, just outside of Ottawa. And uh, in Carlton Place. That's that's how I spend my Friday nights now. And this is Friday night. I'm in the Legion <laughs> Legion in Carlton Place, Ontario, where the minimum or the average age is about 77. I'm just pounding back the Labatt 0.5%. That was my dad's designated driver that night, so it was pretty interesting. A lot of a lot of talk. I noticed when people get together in groups, what they really do is they is they reminisce about alcohol like so much of life revolves around drinking all their stories from way back when was you know how they got drunk how they partied and and you know it's crazy like that's just what you do as an adult you find activities that sort of envelop and involve drinking you just it's just sort of like a mask to drink like hunt like i went hunting Okay, last this time last year, I flew home to go moose hunting. I'm not a hunter by any stretch, but I figured it'd be a good bonding, good bonding experience. So I flew down, paid a flight, went for moose hunting season in New Brunswick, which is a really expensive way to find out that you're a giant pussy. Get a plane ticket out and go moose hunting. And it was basically just me and five grown men in a cabin in the woods, and you just drink. That's what you do. We drank in the ca- at the cabin and in the cabin at night, and in the day we drank in trees, up high up in trees, waiting for moose to come out so we could shoot them. Which is the worst part of the whole thing. I think that's why we we hunt or drink rather, because when you hunt, you have to kill something. I th- that's the thing. That's what it is. I just figured it out. You drink as adults when you get together for activities because. There's always a part of it that you don't like to do. Like for hunting, you drink because you have to kill something. Or golfing, you drink because you have to, you know, golf. You drink to make things better. But all of life sort of revolves around it. So that, needless to say, this weekend I've thought about drinking a lot. They ha- Oh man, they shared a, a sex jokes too. I, we're at the table at the Legion... And by the way, lights just paint I'll paint the picture for you. We're sitting in a legion and all the lights are bright like on. Everything it's like a cafeteria. It's like 
not flattering lady. It's everyone looks green and white hair, gray, pale gray complexion. It's just neon, bright neon lights. Everything's on full blast at a meet and greet. There's no, you know, ambient lighting or anything. Like that. And everyone's drinking and, and, uh, oh, sex. We're sitting around a table. I'm with my dad and a bunch of people in their 70s and their wives. And they're reminiscing on something. They're trying to think of a year uh, that something happened. And someone goes, oh, I think that was 1969. And another guy, 74-year-old, Harry, he goes, 69, that's a good number. That's a good year. It's a good number. A sex joke. They all laughed. So now I have to picture him and his gross wife 69ing. And I'm sober, so I remember that vividly. It's not like I can drink it away, the image. I still, I still, his wife is there. I mean, she's not gross by any means. She's, you know... A cute lady, She's he's 74, she's the same age. Not gross at all, but when you're picturing them 69ing and going at it, which I, you have to picture it after he talks about it and they all laugh, uh, yeah, it just takes it takes a while to process. So that was a good night. I said about six words all night. They couldn't have cared less about my presence there. I was just sort of a fly on the wall, and it, but it was good. It was good to hear the stories and... Realize how life just revolves around alcohol. It really is. Like, think about it. You you go to a game, you get drunk. You go to a concert, you get drunk. You rent a cottage with your friends, you get drunk. You go on a trip, you get drunk. Uh, that's just what you do as adults. So I've been thinking a lot about drinking this weekend. A lot about smoking pot, too. I really thought about it. This is how crazy addiction is. Uh... I thought, hey, I'll just smoke a joint for my birthday. I'll just do it. And I'll, I don't want to do it again. I'll just do it once a year. I'll make that my thing. That always pans out. That's how crazy. It tricks you. I actually believe for a minute. I'm like, yeah, I can do that. I can just smoke a joint. One joint a year. That's not how it works. I know if I had smoked one, I'd be right high right now. Actually, you wouldn't be hearing this. The episode would come out like Wednesday. Next one would come out in three weeks. But it tricks you. And actually, I had a moment with it this weekend because I found some in the pantry where I'm staying. I saw it. a bag. Of, I'm like, oh, that looks like a bag of weed. And then I saw a package of rolling papers right next to it. So I thought, oh, that is definitely weed. So I go about my day and I keep thinking about it. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just go and I'll just smell it. Oh, yeah. I'll just smell the bag of weed. I'll open it. and Oh, man. That's all I need. Because that's what I do. I torture myself. I do the opposite of what you're supposed to do when you're trying to quit things. I'll, like, smell bottles of booze. and So I go and I grab the bag of weed to smell it, and it's full of bugs. Like, it must have been there so long. There were eggs in there, like bug eggs. It looked like deshelled sunflower seeds. Okay, picture those. There was, like, eight or nine in them through the bag, stuck to the plastic of the bag. And in this like clear membrane with like this little like light fuzz like fur on it, it was disgusting. There were clearly bug egg pods, and there was like one in there. It looked like a mini moth, and it was just like f- freaking out in the bag. Like, and there were holes, a couple holes in the bag. I don't know if if the holes were like I don't know if the seeds were in the weed and then the, they they blossomed and or hatched and then the things got out, or the holes were because they got into the weed anyway. Needless to say, I didn't smoke it because 
but I couldn't. That was such a sign. I'm like, well, there's, all right, I, you, okay, there's your answer. Would you believe that he, actually for a minute I thought of picking out the bug eggs, and and smoking it? In fact, you can smoke some. Yeah, you can smoke some, some bug egg pod weed. Anyway, so there was that. And uh, I had a had a boiled dinner, which is went to my aunt's house. I have my dad's sister lives here. Went there for dinner and a boiled dinner. I'm Acadian. I'm Fr- Acadian French from New Brunswick. Shout out to my Acadian peeps out there if you're listening. And there there's this thing called the boiled dinner. This is the thing. This is the new trend now. Okay, new, not new trend, but juicing is a big thing. Where you juice everything you eat, you know, you'll you'll juice uh, beets and carrot and kale and greens. You juice it fresh so that you get all the nutrients. So the fresher the better, so you get all the nutrients and vitamins right away. Super healthy, superfoods. That's the new thing. It's not that new, but again, it's the, that's the thing. A boiled dinner is you take those same ingredients, beets and carrots, potatoes, green beans, and you put them in a pot, and you boil the fuck out of it. Just boil it down and add salt, cured salted pork. Boil the shit out of it until it becomes one color of like, it's almost see-through, everything's almost see-through and like beige. Pour that out into a plate and eat that shit. It's actually pretty good. So I had boiled dinner, and another sex joke happened. We're sitting around the table, and um, I'm there with my parents and my aunt and her boyfriend, and my aunt commented on the fact that she needed to get an extra chair, or ch- extra chairs or something for her dining room table, and she said, as a joke to her boyfriend across the table, maybe after dinner you can take me to Ikea. And he said, what was that? After dinner. We can go to Ikea. I was like, oh, that is not what I understood. I I can't say what I understood at the table, but let me just say that I don't know where the location of that is. Maybe your nether regions? Sex. He's talking about sex. And then my dad goes, oh, you call it Ikea. And then goes, let's cheers to Ikea. And everyone cheered. Cheered? Cheersed. Cheersed it. We all made eye contact, because that's the proper rate of cheers. And cheers to Ikea, which the undertone there was sex. People in their 60s sexing. (laughs) So that that was my weekend in a nutshell. It's always good, again, to see, uh, it's good to see my parents, because I don't see them a lot. I see them about twice a year, like I said, and it's, you know, it's hard, because when you live away from home, and you go back, every time you see your parents, or, especially in that, at that age, you know, my dad's 67, my mom's 63, and you go back, and they're, every time their hair's a little grayer, they're a little bit slower I not by much it's subtle but you notice a difference they're a little smaller for some reason and then you get in your head about it you think well shit should I 
Should I live away? Am I being selfish? Am I being a bad son for not being around my parents all the time, you know? But that's black and white thinking, and life isn't black and white. You know, because the black and white is my parents live there, I live in Toronto to pursue my dreams and ambitions. It's selfish, because they would obviously love to have me around, obviously, but that's black and white thinking. But it's gray. It's not black and white. Life, you know, because truly my parents, if they're good parents, and they are, they just want my happiness. So they support whatever I do, and it's good. They want me to live away and do capitalize on opportunities that they, you know, in their generation couldn't even dream of doing or think of doing. So they want that. So by me being away, they kind of, you know, of course they want me around, but ultimately they want me to be happy. Life happens in the gray. Or at least is what I just tell myself to make me feel better. That's that's another t-shirt right there. Life happens in the gray. All right, enjoy my chat with Adam, Foxy Cleopatra, Fox. And now, Julian Dion presents Are You Mariah or Yoko? Where we find out from each of your celebrity guests, is it vocal range or vocal strain? once again we're here with Jen Grant who will be taking on my guest Adam Fox oh in boy. another Mariah or Yoko showdown. Oh no. The song of choice today is Aretha Franklin's Respect. <laughs> R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Respect. And uh, going up first at bat is Jen Grant. Wait, should uh, we actually just say Sure, explain it quickly what it is. Okay, so you know when you're listening to your... Um when you're listening to your iPhone, you're listening to your, your music and you're by yourself and um, you're singing, you think you sound amazing because you think that's your voice, but what you're hearing is this ama- the recording of Aretha Franklin, for instance. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Adam, remember you get points for enthusiasm okay. and um, it's let's have fun. It's I'm going to sound terrible. Let's go. Okay, here we go. Aretha Franklin, are you Mariah or Yoko? <laughs> What you want, baby, I got it. What you need, do you know I got it? All I'm asking <laughs> is for a little respect. Give just a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> I ain't going to do you wrong. Why are you gone? I ain't going to do you wrong because I'm the one. All I'm asking <laughs> is for a little respect when you come. <laughs> Just a little bit. Just a little bit. All right. <laughs> okay, so that was <laughs> uh, that was Jen Grant. I can't wait for you to hear that back, by the way. Is it awful? It was awesome. It was, yeah. It was awesome. And now, let me just cue it up. We've got singer, songwriter, producer, 
extraordinaire sound engineer, <laughs> 30 years in the music business, Adam Fox. Yeah. <laughs> this should be interesting with a female voice. <laughs> Just do your thing. Sing it how you okay. how you think you should. Crank it up. Crank All right, here we go. And sub- sub- submission number two. Are you Mariah or Yoko, Mr. Adam Fox? Here we go. Uh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. What you want, baby, I got it. Aren't you? <laughs> you know I got it. All I'm asking is for a little respect, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, I ain't gonna do you wrong while you're gone. I ain't gonna do you wrong because I know I wanna. All I'm asking is for a little respect. Just a little bit. Oh, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Wow! <laughs> All of my money. Sorry, to get my uh, my profits when you get home. Just a, just a, just a, just a, just a little bit. Oh yeah, Adam Fox. Oh. Actually, it was good. Is it? Was good. Is it all right? Yeah. It was good. Adam Fox. I was singing a harmony, I think. Thanks. What? That was good. Oh, you can oh. swear. You can say oh, fuck, yeah. shit, oh, sorry. piss, whatever you want. Um, so that was Adam oh, yeah. Fox and yeah. Jen Grant. Well, was it okay? It yeah. actually sounded really good. Did I sound better than Jen? That's all I need to know. I think so. I'm gonna have to give set that up. Yeah. You said I was a professional and all that. I'm gonna have to say this one uh, goes to Foxy, Adam Fox. So so far. Yes. So far, Jen's track record is r- she's just doing really well against comedians and uh, not so well against singer-songwriters for the singers by profession. So that's fair. That is fair. Yeah, next time you should have a musician come in and try and tell a joke. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Write down a joke and deliver it. That's a good idea. So that was Mariah. Are you Mariah or Yoko? need to lose sing a little song then take a shower julian dion comedy okay my guest today i love this man he is a very talented musician producer he wears many 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 hats he's the uh if you've been to the live shows at Say What, you will recognize this guy. He's my Paul Schaefer. He stands at my right. He's, he books the room at Say What, and he's a lead guitarist for Garage Baby. He's also, I mean, so I was just scanning through his website to try to get you guys some sort of bio and history on this guy, but it's so extensive. I, I don't even know where to begin. So he's sitting in front of me, so we'll just get into it, and uh, we'll let him sort of, through the next little while, um, go through his bio and and make it interesting 
<laughs> That's the key. <laughs> okay, I'll try my uh, best. What can I say about this guy? Adam Fox sits in front of me. Adam, thanks for doing this, bro. My pleasure. Adam is also the producer slash sound engineer slash brains behind this podcast. I'm trying to make <laughs> it sound profesh. Um, yeah. So welcome to uh, Lemon Press Studios. Thank you, you. All right. Thank you. So let's sort of get into it a little bit. So... Um, because again, I usually give these, you know, sort of elaborate bios, uh, intros to guests, but that's when I can wrap my head around it. But yours is so vast, I don't even know where to begin. So you've been a musician for what, like many, many years? 30. 30 years professionally, mm-hmm. doing your thing. You've seen a lot of success. Let's talk about a little bit about your first incarnations uh, in, in this business, your first bands, how'd you get into it? So first... Let's go back even more. You're from Toronto. I am. I'm born and bred. Born and bred. And from then Toronto. Brothers, sisters? Two. Two brothers. Two brothers. Mm-hmm. Younger? One 12 years younger. One two years older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so grew up in, in... Did you ever move out of Toronto or you were... Yes. I was born in downtown Toronto. The, uh, but about four, I left Toronto and moved to uh, a farm outside Schaumburg, which was a campus for OCA. Okay. And my father was a teacher at OCA in the 60s and 70s. What's OCA for the listeners? Ontario College of Art. It's now called OCAD. Okay. Ontario College of Art and Design. And uh, so some time there and then all the rest, back in Toronto uh, by the time I was 12. So living on a farm for, was there, I'm digging a hippie vibe a little bit. Was well, it? my dad, he was more of a, a beatnik, I'd say. So pre-hippie. They, the students were hippies, for sure. Right. But my father was older than that, so... No, I don't think he... He was very much into the hippie thing. He was into design, Buckminster Buck Fuller, and all that kind of stuff. You mm-hmm. know, economy of design. Design for all. Design for... By the way, you have a stellar radio voice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> can you... Since you're a sound engineer, can you make me sound like that in post? Yes, okay. I can. So by the time you're listening to this, we both have really good voices. We have to figure out how to get two tracks rolling. Yeah, this is we're on your your unit. A little frustrating, but uh, okay. Back to you. So, thank you. At what age? <laughs> <laughs> at what age do you start playing music? You know what? I didn't start until I was probably fourteen. Oh yeah, that's a little uh, mm-hmm. later than than yeah. you know people that have seen any sort of success usually start really young. It was weird. My dad was a, a horn player, and he really didn't uh, encourage playing music at all. Really. He was a union guy from Sault Ste. Marie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he... What kind of horn did he play? A trumpet. Trumpet. Yeah. I still have his king from, it's a 1935 king, silver-plated king. Cool. Where did he play that? So he he was a session guy, so whoever came through town, oh, yeah, yeah. they would, you know, back. I think there were, a few, you know, all jazz and early, like, classic jazz. Cool. Helen Merrill style stuff. So, 14, What's what do you pick up? A guitar? Guitar. Yeah. Yeah, um, I th- I wanted to be a drummer, mm-hmm. definitely, but still want to be a drummer. But guitar was the way to go. Yeah, and uh, I I think it all started with Chrissy Hine, mm-hmm. pretty much her playing a Telecaster. That was it. Yeah, yeah. that that the first uh, Pretenders record. You were hooked. Yeah, you're in there. Yeah, and so practicing in your bedroom for a few years. When do you put together a group? Um. The first group was uh, called the Shamrocks, and we did, you know, Eddie Cochran covers, and it was actually a duo. Mm-hmm. 
that that didn't last long. And then I left home, you know, around 16, turning 17. So I moved down to Queen Street and immediately started hanging out at the Cameron House and places like that. So, and at the time there was a real rockabilly thing going on with Handsome Ned and the Paladins and the Sidewinders and mm-hmm. all that. So that played a big part, but I didn't play professionally, uh, seriously professionally for another couple of years and one of my first shows was at the Cameron House uh, with a precursor to a band that toured a lot called Pig Farm and, and uh, yeah so that was the first incarnation of Pig Farm under it, a different name it was it was playing with a guy named John Delorier who was, had been in a bunch of the you know uh, the the uh, primary I guess alternative rock and punk bands in Toronto in the 70s L'Etranger uh Diatribe, who else? Uh, I'm forgetting some of the names, but he was from that scene a couple of years older than me, and we worked, I had a job at a restaurant called Yofi's on Baldwin Street, and it was one of the first uh, kind of veggie places mm-hmm. in downtown Toronto at the time. Mm-hmm. It was very rare, and it was Middle Eastern stuff, and um, you could, we had people with Mohicans, and it was just kind of this, you know. Yeah almost like a leftover from the 70s on Baldwin Street was quite famous in the 70s because of OCA, the Ontario College of Art, being right there. And uh, I just harassed him and harassed him. And I used to just knock on his door on Grange and say, please, please, let me pay, let me play. I think he got tired of it eventually. Let me try it for a couple of bands and then, uh, yeah, I just kept harassing him. And what years were what was this? Uh, 82. 82? Yeah. And so, all right, so you start, you play your first set at the Cameron House, and then <laughs> from there, because Pig Farm has seen some relative, like some pretty good success, mm-hmm. right? When, what you, when did that okay. become a thing? I think that was about 87. 87? Yeah, 86. We were playing a lot, like 86 and 87, and it had a couple, I was actually just, I was a rhythm guitar player, because I was still too terrified to actually stand on stage without getting loaded or you know mm-hmm. so uh, I think I told you in the past in high school I would pass out if I had to do a speech in school I would crumble right so I had to figure out a way to perform and we uh, I'm trying to think of how much to d- divulge but you know go, go let's, let's, let's go just deep. say one of our you know we all had uh, a healthy appetite for narcotics at the time and but one of us got kicked out for their excessive use of our nar- narcotics, and I became the new lead singer. And we had a recording session, so had a couple tunes, and that was kind of the beginning of Pig Farm there. Right. So the lead singer it gets, it gets kicked out of the band for <laughs> too many drugs. Right, <laughs> which is absurd in retrospect. Right. It's absolutely <laughs> obtuse. Like. Right. Well, I mean, fate, man. It happened. <laughs> uh, you, became, you stepped up to the challenge. Yeah. And so you lay down an album. Or just a few tracks in the studio? Or? Yeah, we did eight tracks, made a cassette, and just decided to go on tour. Mm-hmm. That was it. And uh, I think that, you know, people were still paying for music and very excited to go to a club. Right. This is, you know, much music is just beginning. And right. the only way you could see something that was weird or alternative was to go to a club. Mm-hmm. It just didn't exist in terms of... Uh, and at this point, so or late 80s, you're doing... You, you've got a cassette with eight tracks. Mm-hmm. And you start going on tour. What kind of venues are you playing in? Um, places, clubs? L- places like the Rivoli in Toronto, mm-hmm. Ca- Cameron House. There's a few. When you went across the country, it was harder. Mid, you know, it was harder to find places that you could play because 
just the style of music. I guess we were considered punk rock. I'm not sure we punk rockers really considered us punk rock. <laughs> we were mm. kind of alt, you know, alt something, you know. It's hard to express it. But those kind of venues, and fairly quickly we were actually playing real clubs. You know, if we were in Vancouver, we'd play the railway or... Um, yeah, standard rock clubs. And how were you getting around back then? We bought a van. You bought a van, so we you did like the real, like the thing, like the oh, we the poster of a touring rock band. You get oh, yeah. the van. I remember you telling me at one point the van, the ceiling was like, because you guys <laughs> slept in the van, right? Yeah, we were in this. Uh, you're thinking about the nicotine, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, we we lived in that thing for months on end, and and uh, it had a built-in, you know, uh, sleeping area, and it was a V8. A conline mm-hmm. with no windows on the side. It had a futon loft built in, and the equipment went underneath. But yeah, touring. The, you're thinking of the story of touring in the states, and yeah, after you know a couple of years of touring in that thing and smoking, when we were in the south, you know, it would get really cold at night when you're in the desert or in the plateau, you know, in Tucson and Arizona and all that kind of area. And when you wake up in the morning, the con- condensate would be full of nicotine, and it would drip on your face. Fuck. And, stain your clothes you'd get you'd just get this yeah horrific yellow stain <laughs> sleep with your mouth open you just keep the uh, addiction going feeding like, it so and how many guys are sleeping in this van um depending usually three three or four mm-hmm. uh, the initial uh pig farm had uh, a female drummer leslie becker mm-hmm. uh, still an astonishing drummer leslie was you know five three correct me if i'm wrong leslie and uh, uh, just a total powerhouse yeah, and totally unusual. Mm-hmm. I mean, any club we walked into, people just looked at us like we were crazy. So uh, before before you went down to the States, you toured yeah. Canada a few times. Yeah. You're three guys, sometimes yeah. four, sleeping in this van. Mm-hmm. You you bond like at a crazy, crazy level with that. Now... Being that the drummer was a woman, did any of the bandmates ever try to to get with that with her? We had a rule. Yeah. yeah. Oh. There's no shagging the drummer. No shagging the drummer. Yeah, yeah. And that was never broken. It was never, not to my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you guys were sleeping in tight quarters. That would have yeah. been weird. Um, <laughs> well, Leslie and I shared a warehouse space in Toronto uh, too, so we were good friends. Mm-hmm. Still are great friends mm-hmm. uh, on Niagara Street. So. Cool. Yeah. And so, okay, so you tour, you're building a fan base, mm-hmm. and what happens next? You have a, that, that album, you go, you... Well, we had it, we started with a cassette tape, then we came back to Toronto, we recorded our first record. Uh, after live. your first tour? After, f- I would say a couple, we, you know, a lot of jaunts out to Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a cassette, you know, we went out to Vancouver and back. There was a big festival, I think it was 87, where a lot of bands, 13 Engines, Reostatics, a lot of Toronto bands went out, Suffer Machine, to Vancouver and played this festival and uh, it was I think you know there's a couple books out now that talk about that this festival specifically I think Dave Bedini wrote one and uh, but we came back we recorded a record in one day eight hours and uh, to vinyl for vinyl not directly to vinyl but for vinyl there was no digital yet mm-hmm. and uh, yeah because at the time there was no digital studios or home studios so you had to pay full pop Right. So the only way for us to do it was to do it in a day. And, and how much? Like that's it was a lot. It right? was yeah. You'd pay a thousand bucks for one day. For a day, easy. And back then, a thousand bucks was a lot of money. Yeah. 
Well, like you know, three what? million now <laughs> <laughs> adjusted for inflation. You know what? I don't. That's a whole, a whole other topic. I'm not sure that it was more relatively more expensive because you know pay, actual pay, you know hourly pay hasn't increased that much right in the last 25 years, right, which is right. another social economic discussion. But I wouldn't. I don't want to romanticize it by saying it was harder to do. I don't think it was because I think people paid more money for music then. Yeah, and in some ways it was probably easier. You could charge 15 bucks at the door at the Rivoli in 1988, and people would pay it happily. And, and $15 back then is like. A 50, million. Yeah, a million at least. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and when you're doing this, are you thinking at any point, holy shit, I'm doing this. I'm a professional touring musician, you know, getting some attention. Is that crossing your mind at all? Or is just you just sort of organically it happens in increments and you're not even really processing the, the fact that you're you're doing it? I don't, yeah. In my case, I don't think I had any other choice. Right. I, it, it just felt... That, that was all there was to do. That was mm-hmm. the goal. I remember being 12 years old and thinking, st- standing by the big FM radio and listening to music, just thinking, that's, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. And the first chance I get, I'm getting the hell out of my home and I'm going downtown. And I'd seen a few fledgling videos on Much Music. And, uh, and it's funny because L'Etranger was one of them. Andrew Cash, who's now MPP for Danforth, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, and watching them and thinking, that's what I got to do. And it was in, their video was shot in Kensington Market. Just thinking, wow. And that's where I moved. I just moved down there. Went, just right, right to the, the neighborhood. Well, I was on Baldwin Street on the other side, but and then on Queen Street, right at Spadina and Queen, right across from the Horseshoe Tavern. That seems to be the case with um, musicians that, that have seen some sort of success. There is no plan B. That's Mm-mm. just you dive in, and there's no other option. And really, failure isn't even an option at that point. Like it, it does, you, just, you just make it make it happen i agree yeah and i think sometimes failure is also uh totally fine <laughs> when right. you're, when you're 17 because that's what's cool like right right you know, i think the i really thought about i really thought that living the life would be awesome too mm-hmm. and i still think that you know I, I wouldn't live that life now but uh you know it was really 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 intense yeah. Really intense. Yeah, the yeah. journey is... is Because, uh, I mean, for comedy, it's the same. They say, you know, oh, it takes at least 10 years to really find your, your true voice and be yourself and really, really... Things start rolling. And when you hear that as a young comic, you think, oh, man. Or, or maybe a, as a non-comedian, just specifically talking about comedy, you that sounds so daunting, but at the, at the same time, when you actually do it, it's so much fun. I mean, the... the path leading to the 10 years i mean it's like you said it's very intense these experiences of touring and experimenting with things and drugs and otherwise and doing it because you're doing it even though you're not finding any quote unquote success immediately financially or otherwise you're you're doing it and you can't imagine doing anything else yeah and were you at that point did you have any part-time work or you're just straight yes when I when we weren't touring, I was doing construction, often, right, and then carpentry. Originally, it was ma- building fences in Richmond Hill, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, then digging ho- first digging holes, mixing cement, literally just day after day mixing cement, and then uh, yeah, moved up to fence building and then deck building, and then became a carpenter. So anytime I wasn't on the road, I was a carpenter, and primarily a carpenter until about thirty five. 
Oh, wow. Even after I had a publishing deal, I was still doing carpentry. Okay, yeah. so then Pig Farm, how, how long did that last? It would, there's two stages. So we did uh, roughly 86, I guess, to 90. Mm-hmm. So not that long, but and at which point we, we kind of broke up and uh, or took a break. Because I think we were literally, you know, I was 130 pounds, really not healthy at all. You know, right. On a six-foot frame, it's, it's pretty... Yeah, I that's was pretty gaunt, and my I think my liver was pretty, pretty done. So in those four years, eighty six to ninety, a lot of partying, yeah, drugs. Yeah, what was your drug of choice? Um, I would ha- just have to say alcohol. I alcohol. Think, I mean, I think there was a lot of mushrooms were really popular. Pot, mm-hmm. cocaine, figured early on, but kind of disappeared as time went on. I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah, pot seems to not even count mm-hmm. almost when you think back. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, yeah, of course, pot, but that doesn't count. I mean, you know. I've recounted, like, I can tell you my habit on in those early tours. I've worked it out. It it was in the van. So you wake up in the van. Often, so first get up, go have coffee, a rum and Coke, and a beer. That's Mm. like, that's before (laughs) food. That's your (laughs) kind of leveler. (laughs) And then in the van, I'd usually... yeah, often drink a, maybe a bottle of port on the way to the show. Mm-hmm. So you're driving, you know, you've got eight hours between cities. And then probably a six-pack for sound check, and then the rider kicks in for beer. Mm-hmm. You know, so you could easily have 25 drinks a day. Crazy. That's not including, you know, the joint that got handed you or the... Right. Or the whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty stupid. And how are you... What So when you're on tour, you're, that's your sort of your your regiment but what about when you're working construction and you're back in the city are you a weekend no i still go out every night because i lived i lived on queen street so right i i think about it i mean i've been in bars for 30 years i'd say four nights a week Mm -hmm. for the last 30 years or five nights a week and when you're young like that you don't give a shit if you work in the morning like you just fuck it whatever you go out you have fun in the moment pay the price the next day and do it all over again yeah. And you sort of start peaking again at night. That's when you come yeah. alive. Yeah. The days are so dreadful. Because <laughs> I've done that too. Yeah. You couldn't care less about the fact that you have to bang out eight, nine, ten hours the next day. And construction, physical, hard yeah. labor. <laughs> so yeah. I can't even imagine doing that yeah. hungover. But you don't think of that at all. You just think, whatever, I'll be a little tired. And you somehow plow through the day. And then at, that, at night, do it all over again. Yeah. And again, that's when you're like, okay, this is what I do it for. But now I couldn't even, now I have, if I work the next day or have something, I can't, even, I'm like, no, I need eight hours. I'm not doing anything. Like, there's no way. Why would I do that to myself? That's insane. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so. I, I have to say, there was a few other jobs. I worked at CBC for a bit as a stage hand, mm-hmm. but it was very similar. It was all lifting and stuff. And and that, I say, have to say at the CBC of the era, it was the same lifestyle. <laughs> was pretty much promoted in the staging department. I worked on Tommy Hunter's show and. Chasing rainbows and all the live sets, mm-hmm. and that was that was pretty intense. But there was tons and tons of drinking going on. You could a little bucket would come down behind the psych, and you could put money, and it would go up into the rafters, and the lighting guys would send you down beer, and you could just—it was <laughs> insanity. And then that, and uh, and I also my favorite gig at the time, it, but it all came from construction. Was working with, for a company called Henry Pierzig that did special effects for commercials, and as a result, I got to work with Michael Snow. 
you know those big dome sculptures? Mm-hmm. I was in the crew that built those, so we brought them up from maquettes and sprayed them and carved them, and the ones that are sitting there. So cool. Some really cool stuff like that. But yeah. that, that all stemmed from construction work and knowing how to work. Tools. Right. Yeah. Okay, so now, so we're 1990, Pig Farm sort of takes a break. Mm-hmm. At that point, do you think you're done for good? Um, no, I don't think so. I, uh, John, the bass player, joined the Doughboys and replaced somebody. We had both been offered the gig with the Doughboys at the time, and John took it, and I became part of a, a band called the Lost Dakotas, which was a dar- another darling Queen Street kind of alt-country band. Mm-hmm. And so didn't really look back but I, it only lasted a couple of years and uh uh we did a tour of canada they did a subsequent one and, and, a, and a couple of albums that did fairly well you know mm-hmm. uh, but pig farm hadn't peaked yet it's funny we you know we'd been touring but you know the ra- it was i think we sold a, a thousand albums of vinyl because the only way to distribute your, your record was to drop it off in a city and then on your way back pick up the profits there right was no, Nobody was really distributing records unless you had a deal. Mm-hmm. And the deals were still very conventional. Right, right. You know, the indie label was pretty rare. I think the only band that sold was Metallica or something. I've forgotten the question now. Uh, <laughs> what was happening that year? Yeah, so John went and toured Europe with the Doughboys, and, uh, and I played Toronto a lot, uh, and a bit of Canada with the Lost Dakotas. That band did pretty well, and I think now more people remember that band than Pig Farm of the era. Mm-hmm. That's what people talk to me about. Uh, but then that la- John came back after touring for a couple of years to Toronto, and we said, let's do this again, and we literally ran into our friend Michael Phillip, Moivota, and Michael's a kind of a legendary tr- Toronto producer who was around all through that era, and he did all these records by Change of Heart. So that's Ian Blurton. Of come on and uh, Reostatics and Crash Test Dummies and so he was the go-to guy, and he'd remixed our first vinyl record with Pig Farm and said, "Do you want to be in our band?" And again, the Cameron figures and all these and yeah, I remember going to the Cameron just sitting, "Yeah, let's do this." So we had a couple bunch of rehearsals and literally within three months we were signed to Peer Music Worldwide, which is a publishing company. Under what name? Pig Farm. Pig Farm again. Yeah, so we were already beyond what we had been before. Right. Right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. And we did a demo uh, at the same studio. We recorded our first record, and uh, which is this that Strawn Avenue Studios will figure in all of these stories. And then, uh, and yeah. The we Rogue. Ended, we ended up, The Rogue. And we mm-hmm. had, then, then it was called Reaction. Mm-hmm. And then it became Presence. Uh, and, we, uh, and then we released the demo as a record and then started touring again. And... Uh, yeah, so we signed with Page Publications, which is you know the Bare Naked Ladies at the time, and uh, Page was the distribution company for. So there's three bands at, at the beginning, and uh, Bare Naked Ladies, Lowest of the Low, and Pig Farm were all signed to this distribution deal with Page. Cool, because you've you've been to Europe and stuff. Was that with with this? With no, okay. I, you know what? As a musician, I've never toured Europe. That's oh, okay. Before. There's a there's a period we missed after I leave, left home and ended up in Pig Farm where I, I was uh, traveling around Europe as a teen. But we'll go back to that if you want. Sure. Or Let's do it. Yeah. You want to go backwards? Should we go back? Well, let's take yeah. a pause. Okay. Let's pause on the 90s Pig Farm success. Yeah. Let's rewind. 
<laughs> Did you like that? <laughs> That's tape, by the way. That's what it sounds like when tape rewinds. And now we're back to, so you're, what age? 18. So I left home and I was living downtown and uh, I decided to sell my guitars. And one of them went to Tim Bovacondi to get money to go to Europe and, you know, do the rail pass thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I ended up kind of sleeping on the streets in Paris and Rome and just doing that thing, sleeping on trains. Are you writing music at all or are you no. uh, not even thinking about music? No, I'm still, you know what, I remember listening to two albums a lot because I had cassette tapes. Uh, one was uh, The Pretenders and uh, a couple of cassettes by pretenders i had a couple of mixed tapes of billy holiday and ella fitzgerald and then i had uh talk talk had just put out a record that first you know that's what you make it mm. that song mm-hmm. yeah i mean you, it was tough to travel around here with a backpack it's not again you <laughs> three cassette or four cassette tape. it would all get stolen anyway if you had anything more than that right so and it ended up in greece at the end how long were you over there? I was well. That trip was four months. Wow! So just literally being a street urchin, it was great. I bet it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So then, and then you come back, and then yeah. you buy another guitar. I buy another guitar <laughs> and start harassing John again, and uh, and then oh yeah. So before there's another very shortly after that, uh, I had a period on on briefly on social assistance and uh you at the time you could ask for when you got a new apartment they would give you a double payment mm-hmm. to pay your uh first and last month's rent but if you could find a place that didn't charge you first and last you could uh just take the money and i uh, myself and a girlfriend at the time just decided that we take first and last get a people's airline flight for a hundred bucks to houston texas <laughs> And then cross the border at Matamoros and go to Mexico. So we did that. Cool. And then we ended up down in Mexico for a few months. And I ended up working with some Mayans on that in Puerto Huartes, which is near between Cuba and what is now Cancun. Mm-hmm. No, it was always Cancun, but wasn't the the, the, the famed Cancun right. now. The tourist destination. Yeah. Well, could, how long and were you in Mexico that, for? That was for a few months. And then, yeah, traveling around and picking mushrooms and selling them and hunting iguanas for a little bit and wow how do you hunt an iguana you trap them yeah yeah in the jungle between in chiapas between yeah what are they used for you like to eat you know what yeah you could eat and then they use the skins to make stuff you know i want to see iguana shoes um (laughs) cool so that but that all sort of feeds it that's kind of life experience i feel like feeds into music career or any sort of creative career it's really valuable life experience that you can't learn other than doing that sort of sort of stuff okay now let's fast forward so in the end of that trip and you're right i remember at the end of that trip that was like okay now i'm going to be a musician and right get out of your system and again i flew back i had hitchhiked from chiapas uh, near tulum to mexico city and then uh called home and I had some money here, and money was sent, and I flew back to Toronto, and the first place I went was the Cameron House, again, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And I remember sitting in the Cameron House thinking, okay, now I'm going to be a musician. Cool. Is yeah, that like still around the Cameron House? Oh, yeah, oh still yeah. there. Yeah. 
Queen of Spadina. Yeah, you got to go. It's great. It's yeah. still it's still the hub of that. Same and same, same place. Same great vibe and people living upstairs and Cool. Do you ever just go in there just for like do you still go there? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. And does it bring you back or you've gone through so your whole life it doesn't it's not like you've stayed away. Yeah, I guess I've got to watch it develop right. over the years. I mean, it's changed for sure, but mm -hmm. Okay, know, now let's people are dead. So. <laughs> Quite frankly. <laughs> Uh, let's fast forward if you mm -hmm. can give us a sound effect for that. Dead? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> How's that? Uh. How about dead in fast forward? Yeah, I can't do that. Can you? Uh. I'm not sure you can fast forward death. But give us a uh, fast forward sound effect like the rewind. <laughs> How's that? And we're back to the hey. '90s. Yeah. Um, you're. With Pig Farm, yeah. second in incarnation. incarnation. Pig Farm version 2.0. Yeah. So it's a three-piece with Michael Philip Voyevoda and uh, John Delorier and myself. And we do some touring in a van. Same van? Different van. Different van. We learned to rent. Mm -hmm. It was less expensive. Mm -hmm. Less gross. <laughs> a little less gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we had a little bit of money, too. So it was, you know. A little bit, not a lot, but a little. And uh, we tour, you know, back and forth a couple times. Well, the first tour, though, we took us out east to Newfoundland, and we came back. You know, probably the biggest show of our career was playing uh, Kingswood Music Theater, opening for the Bare Naked Ladies. You know, that was like fifteen thousand people. Wow! And then the next night, we played on Ronces Vale at the Edgewater Hotel to ten. So that was the big. Well, that's show business for <laughs> you. Showbiz. Yeah. Yeah, and then continued on across uh, with a different drummer, Lonnie James. Because, uh, yeah, and West, and then that was just so depressing, just so. In what way? Just small crowds. Yes. Well, it was always pretty good in Vancouver, and we had a f an okay following. And Vancouver was airing some of the stuff from our album, and uh, which was called Plug. And then. Uh, but by the time I remember getting back to Winnipeg and I th Royal Albert Hotel or something, and uh, which is a real dive, it's a good room, but a dive upstairs. Mm -hmm. And uh, watching Spinal Tap while we were being interviewed for a local paper, and people, you know, it was clear that it was just going to be a, a terrible show. Maybe ten people show up, and and thinking I'm living Spinal Tap because. <laughs> and just looking at John and across the table during this, he's going, "Oh man!" And we had just fought about the drummer and how he, you know, wasn't paying in time, and I don't know, just all those arguments mm -hmm. and all those, you know, where are they now? Kind of, <laughs> kind of shit. Like the the business is so fickle, right? And, and yeah, you know, the difference. You have a month and the release of a record, and then just the complete, you know, apathy and the. And so, how long how long does Pig Farm V two point last? About a year and a half, and then oh, that's it. Yeah, not long. Ninety three, maybe two years, and then it was just I. And what did I you do after that? Um, very quickly. Uh, very quickly. Well, I still had a publishing deal with Peer Music, so as a as a writer, and so I was uh, doing a lot of writing with artists at the time at Peer Music in Toronto and co-writing. Mm -hmm. And then I started kind of a folky singer-songwriterly band with uh, Maury Lafoy, Graham Powell, and sometimes Blair Packham. Uh, so they had a band called The Supers, 
sorry, they were called Fall Down, Go Boom, and they became the Supers. And uh, we did a lot of kind of CSNY-ish kind of original tunes. Mm-hmm. And they made an album. And then I became a house engineer at a place called uh, Umbrella Sound by accident. I had made a record and needed to pay it off. And they said, why don't you make some work here, <laughs> work off your debt? Which is how I became an engineer. I mean, it wasn't, I've never been interested in gear really, or engineering, but it just kind of happened. Yeah, that was my next question. So how do you go from from full-fledging musician to engineer, producing? Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I had to pay off an album, and mm-hmm. the first year I must have done, it feel, I think, realistically, maybe 30 albums in the basement of Umbrella. It was all an ADAT recording studio, so digital was starting to happen, mm-hmm. and uh, I did a lot of, just every day, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, Nine dollars an hour, just churning out music. You'd think it would be way more than nine bucks an hour. Well, it's it's like a million now. That, oh right, right. That's right. Yeah. This is back yeah, in the nineties. Back 90s. in the day. <laughs> 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 and uh, no, yeah, as a junior engineer, you don't, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, yeah, so I did that, and then the digital kind of revolution happened, and I hopped on really quick and bought a Pro Tools rig and just set it up in my living room by two thousand. And uh, started doing production from home. I got to figure, even at 12 hours a day and nine bucks an hour, I mean, that beats any side gig because you're still in the realm of music. You're still doing, you're still doing it. You're yeah. still living your passion and, yeah. and, and just at a different level. It was awesome. Level. Yeah. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, and I, I always say to people now, there's just almost, I have to be careful. I th- you know it's it's awesome that there's all these schools turning out engineers and, and but most of it's for post work but really if you want to be an engineer and make records mm-hmm. just go to work at a studio for free for two years just walk into you know Revolution and Bug Joe or somebody he's gonna kill me for saying that <laughs> and uh, just say you know I wanna I wanna work here and mm-hmm. I'll do it for free don't pay twenty thousand bucks right See, to go now, to go to school yeah now the Harris people are gonna kill me too <laughs> right. a lot of my a lot of friends teach at Harris and Trevis and you know I think if you want to make albums and you really want to do that world I'm not you know I'm sure the the, yeah. the production work is really great if you want to work in television or comedy <laughs> 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 okay uh, so now we're in the 2000s yeah. you've got you've hopped on the digital bandwagon yeah. relatively early you've yeah. got a home studio yeah. and are you when do you start producing art? Like, how do you find artists to produce? A lot of the clients I got were from Umbrella Sound. So right. Umbrella is a studio that had Jamie Stanley and Joa Carvalho. And if you're in the music industry, most people know Joa. They, and he's one of the co-owners of Revolution and Carvalho Mastering now. So, um, yeah, most of them came from Umbrella. Mm-hmm. They just kind of followed me and, and we did. And we still worked in a lot of studios. I used uh, the Rogue a lot, James Paul's studio. And still tracked in a lot of the big studios, but then mixed everything at home. Mm-hmm. So, and that was uh, that was great. And I found I could get more done in six hours than I did in twelve. Right. And yeah. And are you at this point finding time for for performing yourself? Or absolutely, yeah. yeah. Playing a lot still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I made another record, uh, just a solo record called "A Letter to Providence," and playing with those gentlemen, Maury and Graham. And, and Maury's a, a really sought after session player now. Graham, I think plays with Jan Arden and uh when did that solo record come out 98 98 I think it, which record contains has the song Josephine on it 
That's a more recent one. That's the one I released just before Annabelle was born. That's such a good fucking track, man. Yes, that's about Michelle. That's a great story, that song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll play it out at the end. Um, if you give me the rights to, if you don't. Absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, the story about the song is is an interesting story. T- oh, tell the story, that, that please. Was, I, was pro- I was, you know... I was setting you up there, but if you don't want to hear it, oh no, I do. Oh, sorry, I missed that. (laughs) I was thinking of the song. I went off for a second. Like shit, I want to play that later. Well, I was married before, Mm -hmm. and uh, when I met Michelle, my wife, uh, we met at the Ontario Science Center. I had taken a job as a a tech there, and uh, for OmniMax and IMAX and. It was it was just it was just completely love at first sight. Mm-hmm. And you're married at this point. When and I'm met. married to someone else at this mm-hmm. point, and uh, it was very, you know, it was horrific and wonderful. And uh, but I wrote a, a breakup song to mi- to Michelle uh, called Josephine because her middle name is Josephine. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I couldn't use her real name because I was married to someone else. And Not right. I I knew that I was just head over heels, and uh, it was life altering, and it's still life altering and wonderful. Uh, but I wrote this breakup song called Josephine to her to her mm-hmm. and I, right as you can see I have the, the tattoo as well and I met uh, Michelle in the uh, in the art gallery of Ontario what year that's uh, 14 years 2000 mm-hmm. no sorry we met in 2000 uh, probably 2002 mm-hmm. and uh, with a CD player and uh, we sat in a little booth we went to see this very romantic exhibit, and I said, you know, this is how I feel. Put on the headphones, listen to this song. And I had done it in my home studio. And Yeah, that's the... I think putting that song out in the world is actually what kind of flipped me, helped me make the decision to right. end my previous relationship. So you, but, so you had a two years there of, of... So you met her, Love at First Sight. Mm. You have two years before you, you show her the song. How, how soon after you met her did you write that song? Oh, it took, yeah, it took a couple of years. Mm-hmm. We we would see each other almost every day. She was a, an usher mm-hmm. at the theater. And, and uh, we just, we had a great friendship and we'd talk and trade books and yeah. we'd be in the dark the whole time just with headphones on. Right. And because, uh, you know, you speak over these headsets. And mm-hmm. It was just, it became a really close friendship very quickly. And uh, I was about to emigrate to England and Michelle basically sent me an email telling me how she felt about me, which I totally didn't expect. Like, mm-hmm. I had my feelings, but I, yeah, you know, I was treating my my own relationship with respect, I guess, my, you know, the one that I was in, uh, but perhaps, you know, it wasn't really... And so so you get the email from Michelle that's before you ever showed her that song. Had you yes. written the song at that point? No. And okay, and uh, when, you, when you did show her... This when you said put on these headphones and listen. This is how I feel. Are you still married at that point? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, wow, man! So right away she hears that song. She's she's in deep because you know how she feels already. Yeah. Now now We're she done. knows how you feel. Yeah. It's all out there. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with your your marriage? Like how does that? That's that's tough. Like you said, it's life altering. It's, it's, it's horrific for horrific. everybody. Um. Yeah. It was horrific for everybody. Uh, basically, what happened is I just said, "Okay, I'm I'm going to go talk to my my now ex and just tell her." Just said I've met someone and 
And that that was yeah. Fuck. How long were you together with with your ex? In the end, I think nine years. Jesus. Yeah, horrific is the word to it was, describe yeah. it. For. And for all intent, I think uh, from the outside, everybody, you know, perception of my relationship at the time was it was awesome. Right. You know. Did your wife or ex-wife mm-hmm. ever see it coming? Did she have no. a feeling? So she was blindsided completely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Luckily, no no kids were involved or anything like yes. that. Yeah. Yes, they were, or no? No, no, no yeah, that's you, what I thought. Yes, okay. you are correct. There were no children involved. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I know. What I, yeah. And you're living together. You go home. You tell her. We have a house, yeah. A house. Mm-hmm. You're married. Yeah. Shit, man. And like you said, every, the people around you, outside looking in, well, even no, by what you're saying, inside looking in. I told no one. Right. I told no one. So it was a shock for everybody, which is like, <laughs> what? And, uh, yeah. And how do you deal with that? Like, so now you go, you talk to your wife, you tell her you met someone, and what's next? You move out immediately? Do you... She, she uh, not quite immediately, but eventually, yeah, she left the country. We had been planning to emigrate to England. And Together. I, and I just didn't. Okay, and so she she had a reason to go over there, like, yeah, also. She, yeah, so she went, and, uh, yeah, I think that made some of it easier and you know some of it harder but uh, she left but at the same time Michelle and I didn't we didn't officially hook up for another two years we had a it's it blows my mind now but we actually made the decision not to get together right wait until my life was sorted wow that's that's pretty big and it's big but it's that's probably the reason you guys have been together so long I mean still together it's because I like I could be wrong but if you would have gotten together immediately it's almost like that foundation isn't there quite yet you know you have to sort your shit out before, absolutely because then it's sort of like yeah it, it's sort of there's like some holes in that foundation mm-hmm. if you get together right away well yeah that's big that you had the uh wisdom to like both of you had the wisdom to wait it out a couple of years i think for both of us it was a uh, we knew it was pivotal and it 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 was uh it was surrounded by a whole lot of other decisions about life and uh for both Michelle and I, and I won't speak on her behalf, but for me, it really was a moment where I decided that I would change everything, mm-hmm. that I would, uh, I would be, you know, the, the master mm-hmm. of my life. And it's funny, there was a, there's a, was it 2002, the, you know, the great blackout of Toronto? And that night was a pivotal night and it's all around. So at this, by that point, my wife, my ex-wife had left the country and uh, I was working at the AGO as well, doing sound. And uh, the blackout happened, and I spent, you know, an hour and a half getting people out of the basement of the AGO, kind of helping them get it, and then walked home up Pape Avenue and, you know, decided to have a barbecue because you had to have the fridge, and mm-hmm. it was clear this weird thing was going on. Because the whole, I don't know if you remember, the whole eastern seaboard was out, mm-hmm. like, in the United States mm-hmm. and Canada. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I drank the beer that was in the fridge and then I went and I thought what do you do when the lights are out and I went to Withrow Park and lay in the grass on the football field and looked at the sky because you know you could see the sky in the city finally you know and smoked a big joint and then woke up in the morning wow in the dew (laughs) on the field like just you know prone and uh that was a really pivotal moment I remember getting up and thinking okay well this is when life changes and kind of and it's funny, I don't think outwardly life changed a whole lot. Right. But certainly for me, inwardly, happiness just seeped in, 
And it's a weird, it was a really strange and powerful process. Just, Mm -hmm. it's okay. Everything is as it should be. Don't worry about it. It's okay. So this is 2002. So this Mm -hmm. is, you haven't quite broken it off. Where I've, we, I'm still buried, but my ex has left the country. So it's it's over. It's over. It's over. But you uh, just realize everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And that, and I also realized that Michelle was my partner, but Mm -hmm. we still didn't get together for another couple of years. That's amazing. And because, yeah, you, I mean, knowing you now, I've only known you for a couple of years, Mm -hmm. but you're a very grounded, happy dude. You seem very, very happy and, and, uh, it's like easy, good, good, like energy, just like, yeah, it's all good. I also embarked on a ton of therapy. Right. (laughs) At the same time, (laughs) I I looked around and and I, I joined a woman's group. I would imagine you'd have to at that point. I mean, because that is a giant trans like transition to to say it lightly, um, like that's an understatement. But it's, um, I mean, that's huge. Of course, you'd have. So you joined a women's group because there are no men's groups. Yes. Right. Yeah. And well, so it didn't matter to me what what kind of people I was with. It, Males don't tend to go to therapy, I guess, or at least group therapy. Right. So if you want to, you know, and I, I met a, a therapist who uh, just, I, I went for a single appointment with her and I said, you you have to, you got to do something. Man. Right. I, first I went to my GP who's known me through all of it. And uh, and I just said, Somebody, you got, we got to do something. I need mm-hmm. to change everything now. And she hooked up, me up with one therapist, didn't work out, went to another one. And uh, she said, well, you should come to this group. And I said, okay. And uh, they didn't want me there, but I stayed anyway. They, it was it was a struggle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a struggle because, I, you know, I, I had a lot of women there had issues with men. And, and uh, the last person they wanted to hearing their secrets was another man. But in the end, I stayed for a few years, three years, I guess. And uh, it was great. It was awesome. Yeah, it it really helps. I mean, <clears throat> I think everyone should be in therapy. I agree. Because it's people <laughs> say that it's uh, there's a stigma with it. It's mm-hmm. like I'm not crazy. It's like yeah, but you're dealing with the human mind. I mean, just do it. Yeah. You know, people wouldn't attempt to fix their own cars, but the mind. They're like, oh, yeah, I got this. It's all good. <laughs> Don't it's, worry about me, man. <laughs> I'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, it's shocking. I think everybody. Yeah, by the time you're 24, you should probably do two years of therapy. Mm-hmm. You know. And then uh, maybe take a break. It should be part of the public health, mm-hmm. you know, along with dental. Uh, absolutely, yeah. You know what I mean? I don't. Yeah. yeah, it was it was awesome. Yeah, again, you sh- you wouldn't fix your own teeth, but your your mind. You're like, yeah. I got this. I got this. I'll do it. I'll, I'll do the work myself. I totally understand the brain. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, that's a good story, man. I I like that because I I didn't know. Because I, I know I know your wife's name is Michelle, mm-hmm. but I didn't know where Josephine came from. I didn't know if that was about your ex-wife. I didn't know if the, how old that song was, mm-hmm. or for I didn't know who it was for. So so thanks for sharing that. That's good, and we'll play it at the end of the episode. But uh, not to uh, so in the two thousands, you're producing, you're releasing, you're doing a little bit of solo stuff. Yeah. Um, any groups? Are you in any bands? I'm doing mostly my solo stuff, uh, and then, uh, what, what year are we in? Fourteen, nine, eight, around. T- yeah, not until two thousand eight do I start the exploding band. I, although, oh, sorry, I was in a jazz band called the Tiny Specs, mm-hmm. and we did standards, and uh, that was a cool 
project, Topher Stott, who's one of the guys in uh, the League of Rock. I don't know if you've heard that whole thing. He's one of the creators of that. No, I and uh, Bruce Gordon, who was the bass player in I, Mother Earth, was in that band. And uh, we did some jazz stuff, you know, did that at the Gladstone Hotel. And I was doing some tech work at the Gladstone as well at the time. So that was fun. And, and they also an improv band called Hot for Gandhi. I, I, saw that, I saw that picture to say what. Yeah. So what's yeah. an improv band specifically? like? That I think the general rule around that band was you, you showed up at the gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, the parameters were somewhere between Miles Davis and James Brown, I think. I can't remember. It was something like that. And go. And we didn't, there was no charts, no songs, nothing. And you couldn't let the audience know that there was no plan. Right. But it had to sound digestible like it couldn't just sound like noodling yeah yeah jazzy yeah. noodling it actually had to sound like a thing mm-hmm. and that was re- we did that for about a year like once a week i think it was once or was it once every two weeks and it just learning it's going to sound so stupid but just to trust the universe that you you had the knowledge to right. pull this off and it was like that was a lot of fun mm-hmm. david baxter was in that band guitar player david baxter again topher stott and uh, uh, a few different bass players but and then we'd have guest musicians come in and just it was great it's interesting that you say trust because you just have to because right like at this point when you're in that that band you've accumulated all these years of experience and you just have to have faith in your skill set and like you Mm. said the universe that is just going to work out because that happens for comedy like you just you know at say what we've done these bits where like you and I, where I've talked about your daughter, and then I'd have to talk. I wanted to talk about my niece, and so those are just—they're just really an idea of a story. You, you don't know where the funny is going to come from, whatsoever, <laughs> whatsoever. And there's no. this audience there staring at you, expecting to laugh. This is why they're here, and you're like, "I'm going to tell this story. I don't know where the laughs are going to come from, but let's just go in." So you just have faith, and it yeah. and it usually does. It usually does work out. And so a lot of people listening will know Garage Baby from the intro song and from the shows that say what. When did when does that come together? Uh, a few, only a few years ago now. I guess it's coming on three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing sound at Say What and Garage Baby as a three-piece played a show. And that was Mike? Michael and James and Claude. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had said to Michelle that, you know, it's time for me to get in a rock band again. We'd taken a couple of years off because we'd had Annabelle and, you know, just wasn't playing. Uh, and uh, I walked on stage after the show and I said, I'm your new lead guitar player. And Michael said, no, you're not. <laughs> he, he'd never met me. Sure. Ja- and I knew James quite mm-hmm. well. And, uh, and no, you're not. And Claude, I think, was kind of like, yeah, okay, that's a possibility. I don't see why not. Claude didn't know me either. Mm-hmm. But maybe I had enough attitude. That right. <laughs> and... Uh, and James said, you know, later, let me talk to him. Let me talk to him. And uh, he said, well, you know, just give it some time. So they had, I didn't know they had just been rehearsing and, you know, getting the stuff together. Michael and James have a long history. They were in a band called the Pop Boilers a long time ago. And uh, about a month like, or so later, they gave me a call saying, you want to come down and try out? In my head, I'm thinking, try out? What are these ponces? <laughs> Don't you know who I am? And uh, but yeah, I went and I and then there was a second tryout. But mm-hmm. they were trying out a lot of guitar players, I think, or a few anyway, not a lot. And uh, yeah, so I I got the gig. 
So we still have the joke that I'm the new member of the band, even though they've only had one gig before I joined the right. band. But, uh, you know. And it's uh, funny uh, to watch you play now because you say back in high school and when you were young, you were petrified. And then when you're part of your first groups, you had to be blind drunk to, yeah. to get on stage. You come to a Garage Baby show now. I mean, you're out in the crowd. You're standing on tables. You're, you're, <laughs> yeah. You almost put your foot through my chest the other day. <laughs> so you're standing on a table. I'm sitting in a chair. And he leaned in and put his foot on my chest to... to, to yeah. And you guys go fucking crazy. I mean, you... It's hard to do our real thing at Say What? Because right. the ceiling's too low. Right. You can't swing a guitar. And how did that come about? In rehearsal or no. at a live show? You no. You know what I'd have to say with Garage Baby? It's entirely authentic. Right. The longer our sets got, the longer we're on stage, the more likely that's to happen. And it really is absolutely authentic. Because you guys fuck shit up. The, mo the moment we started playing together as a four-piece, I think that it, the energy just started rising and rising and... Uh, I think we're just generally self-destructive people, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, James, I think, is the worst in, when it comes to breaking things, for sure. But, right. Uh, and usually, I've just, it started me having to protect myself. And right. Then, you know, it's like a sword fight. He'd come at me with his bass, and you lift up your guitar. So that's how it started. <laughs> and basically. then it just, you know, it, it's kind of progressed. But it's totally, yeah, it's totally not scripted. Uh, what about the first time it ever happened? Were you like, dude, watch my stuff, or you just go and you just go no, with it? No, we've all we all purposely have cheap instruments for that gig, right? That are you know they're well they're well cared for and uh, they have nice pickups, but the bodies are cheap, purposely. Right, <laughs> that's great. So we, we're not precious. And people can listen to get some of your stuff at adamfox.com. Correct. F a u x. Yes. And anything else you want to plug? Yeah, yeah. Well, and Garage Baby, but you can get that all through the Exploding Band, Garage Baby, Adam Fox, all at adamfox.com, or mm -hmm. you can just Google garagebaby.ca, right, and do that. And, and that's all there. And that goes to uh, garageband.bandcamp.com or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I could talk to you all day. But uh, we got to wrap it up here. Thanks for thanks for doing this. I I, I, that's, I like the Josephine story a lot. As a matter of fact, we're gonna play. I'm gonna play the the song after the outro of this episode. So um, awesome. After you hear a little waste of time by Garage Baby, you're, shit, you're all over this podcast in music. You're in the music <laughs> segments. You're uh, my guest. It's and part of the plan, the master plan. <laughs> it's all coming together now. Infiltrate and of course yeah. you can see Adam every other Wednesday as part of the. Uh, Julian Dion Comedy Hour um, house band on stage, which will be in the new year. It'll be exploding band because uh, Mike yeah. is going to St. Croix for yeah. three months. Yeah, he's going to play. He's got a gig down there. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah. saying a residency. That's cool. Yeah. So, uh, but you'll always be there. Your heart. You're, you're, you've been the booker at Say What for how many years? Six now? years. Six years. Yeah. I remember when I tried to get in there, you weren't having any of it. I had to be careful. Right. I had to Google you and took me like eight months and then because uh, i sent you first initial emails mm -hmm. nothing and then i just persisted and then you gave us two trial shows yeah that went really well and uh yeah now uh it's safe to say i think that you're a fan of the show and you're you brought the idea of a house band we were trying to expand on what we can do with that space creatively and use use it to its full potential and you yeah. suggested the house band and that's been the best addition ever i love it, it it's i've been just totally freaked out that the band have become a part of the show 
It's I, a great, I, it's fun, so much fun. And sometimes we're even funny, which I, we're, I think we're all learning about timing. <laughs> well, that was the thing. One of the conditions was if you're going to be on stage, you're all going to be mic'd. And yeah. if you say anything, say it into the mic. Yeah. And I think it's created some some magic moments have come out of it. I mean... And some very tense ones, too. Some tense ones. You comedians. <laughs> a little bit touchy on flow and shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> Which just makes us mad. Right, right. Just makes the band louder. Because as a gig, I mean, you guys just sit there for... Yeah. I mean, you you play maybe, what, five, six full songs throughout the entire night, but for the most part, you're doing intros and outros. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, but... I love sharing the stage with you because we did one gig after you guys came on board in January and there was one or two gigs that you couldn't, I think James had to pull out or something. So we did it without the band. And what a difference I felt. On st- I felt alone up there. And like, <laughs> you guys are like a security blanket because I write a lot on stage at Say yeah. What. So you guys are sort of my sounding board. If 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 the audience isn't there, at least you guys are there to uh, cushion uh, cushion the whole experience. Anyway, so come check it out at Say What. Check out for dates at uh, jdcomedyhour.com and uh, go to adamfox.com. My man, thanks again for doing this. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. And uh, watch your head. (laughs) Well, that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. Episode 6 is in the books. Thanks again for listening. Thanks to my guest, Adam Fox. Thanks to my producer, Adam Fox. Thanks to my sound engineer, Miles Lacroix. Thanks to you once again. If you're in Toronto, come to Say What tomorrow, Wednesday, October 8th, for uh, the Julian Dion Comedy Hour Showcase. Great show lined up. It's my birthday show. Come out. Episode 7 drops on Friday. So do that. Look, at, look, look for that. Go to facebook.com slash jdcomedyhour. Follow on Instagram and Twitter at jdcomedyhour. I think that's it. I think that's everything. So instead of having, uh, oh, mom, I love you, and uh, thanks for not listening. And um, if, yeah, usually <laughs> usually I would uh, play out the rest of this uh, song, Waste of Time, but... Keep uh, keep listening. I'm going to fade right into Josephine, the song we Adam and I talked about. It's a great, great track. You'll enjoy that. Have a good one. Watch your head. You have all already left me You tried once before And I'm wondering why you cry When I say I love you even more And I've tried not to notice You can make me shake If you just breathe a little faster I know you're gonna break these chains And Josephine You will not make me stay And even when I'm crying In the middle of the day Oh, you will not break my foot down 
promise to confess that every single poor in me considers itself blessed to be near you. Now every time I see you, you just launch me into space. Cannot help but notice how good you taste. And when you kiss me, do you lose it? Does your soul shoot through to Mars? Will you comfort me forever? Will you stay the way you are, Josephine? You will not make me stay. Even when I'm crying in the middle of the day, oh, you will not break my fort down. And I promise to confess that every single poor in me considers itself blessed to be near you. Can't tell me not to think it. I'm drinking it here. This can't be a sin. Say it in the open, in front of everybody here. Josephine, I need you. And I just want to make it clear to you, you don't hesitate to use me when you least expect the test. Don't you ever let my love go. You're gonna... Need it for the rest of your life and You can't tell me not to think it I'm drinking it in This can't be a sentence